Welcome to the Wild and Exposed podcast, your source for wildlife, adventure, and outdoor photography. The hosts of the show are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Loftus. This is our second podcast, the first one with Jason that you all know, he's actually one of the regular hosts. We recorded one yesterday, and we want to get ahead of schedule, so we're recording another one. So we're going to have a download of Jason's day today in Yellowstone, and then we've got a whole topic on... What do we decide? We're going to talk about shooting in snow, mostly exposure, just because I think it's way easier nowadays with digital, but it still is something that confuses people. So we'll get into that later. But first, I think we ought to talk a little bit about your day today, Jason. Um, in the last episode, we talked a little bit about, you know, putting your time in. And I think uh, the last two days for me have been a little bit of that, just putting my time in. Um, slow day today again. Uh, just no animals were really moving. Um, in the afternoon, a storm did roll in, though, and was able to get some pretty cool stuff right at the end of the day. Uh, got some real hard wind blowing, blowing snow across the landscape and snow coming down and some bison that, you know, those storms move in and it gets the critters moving. So those bison coming up over the hill at you, you know, that snow blowing across them, getting some beards moving and stuff. So kind of some cool stuff right there at the end of the day. So it was worth it. Um, but I was getting worried. I was afraid I was going to have two days in a row where I didn't even click a click a single picture. But <laughs> You know, that happens, though, and you've got to put in your time because I think people talk a lot about, man, you get so many good pictures. But it's those days we don't talk about that lead to those days that you do talk about, right? I've definitely learned that. You're just putting your time in, and you just got to get out there. You know, you can't do it sitting on the couch, so... <laughs> that's for sure so how's the day go for you out there we were trading text messages earlier today and you said you've been in the park for a total of what, eight or nine days this this winter is yeah, that right yeah, eight days as of today yep, yep so with that kind of knowledge are you do you wake up in the morning you're like okay i'm gonna hit this spot first and then i'm gonna go to this spot do you have a day planned or are you just like okay i know that i'm traveling this road and i'm just gonna go till i see something that's a real good question so today i usually try to make a plan now, because it really depends on where you want to be at in the park at what time you know and if you want to be at a certain spot when the light's right then you got to probably you know and if that's at the end of lamar valley pebble creek for example then you you have to get up about an hour earlier than you normally would to be in there at that time so yesterday they there was a, a bison kill um or a bison carcass anyways a small bison that had been killed um they think it was a wolf kill Never, I never did see a wolf on the carcass. It was right by the road, so about 40, 50 yards off the road. And um, I spent quite a bit of time camping out on that yesterday. And that was probably part of the reason I didn't have such a great day, to be quite honest. And then uh, today, we just I just kept checking it. And there was a couple coyotes that were hitting it. So, you know, if coyotes hitting it, I'm pretty sure there's not any wolves around. Um, but, you know, who knows? Uh, generally, they're pretty afraid if the wolves are in the area so they don't mess around knowing that, that carcass was there that's where i wanted to be first thing this morning um just to check on that and see what was going on so that made i needed to be about a half hour into the park in order to be able to be where that's at and then from there it was just you know trying to once i checked that and found out there was nothing going on it's just you know heading out and trying to you know hit my little route that i do and you know see how the day unfolds from there there's usually what uh, there's three or four traditional areas like I, I and I haven't done it in the winter in a long time but isn't it out there by what's that corner before you turn into going into Cook City and there's that butte there what do they call that is there like a little they call it soda butte or something like that soda butte yep soda butte Hitchin post area then right there at the confluence is another kind of real kind of a key area where animals kind of tend to be around um, and then there's a couple other areas to Slough Creek. You mentioned that yesterday or the other, you know, on the last episode, um, that's a pretty common area right there. And then little America is another area, um, where there tends to be, you know, critters congregating. And then he, I'd even say by the bridge there and, and Roosevelt area too. I mean, that's the thing is you just never know. You can see anything anywhere at any time and it happens quite a bit, but those areas tend to be more, more common to see, you know, animals in those areas. I don't know, Ron, what's your experience? In the wintertime, my experience is limited. I, kn I know that um, those areas that you're talking about, right, kind of at the beginning of the Lamar Valley from the west and, and then toward the end of the valley on the, on the east side as you move up toward Cook City, there 
tend to be better viewing opportunities, but I think it's more because it's not because the, there's not animals in the rest of the stretch. The better opportunities come because you've got deep snow and it kind of bottlenecks in both of those areas. So the wildlife tends to be a little bit more accessible, uh, a little bit more photographable. And then, of course, uh, you know, around mammoth. And if you're looking for sheep, if you're there to photograph sheep, the the cliffs just coming in from Gardner are a pretty good spot as well. What about river otters? It used to be out there by Soda Butte where that those that river's really slow. Yeah, right on the right on the corner as the water it it'll freeze the shelves, but those otters tend to hang or used to hang right in that area. And have you seen any there, Jason, or have you been looking for otters at all? Oh yeah, I've been looking right there at the bridge before Slough Creek is a kind of a common area for otters. And um, then right there by the confluences where, where the two rivers meet there, where Ron's talking, right by the cliffs where the sheep hang out too. Um, that's kind of a com- – I, I check that spots every time I go by. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but when you're doing a full day and if you're making that route and if you don't get too interrupted, you know, you can only make – it takes you about two hours to do a pass up and back. So, you know, you can do four or five passes in a day and your day's pretty much done. And hopefully you don't make that many passes because you get stopped shooting stuff right. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like I said earlier, I think it's one of those deals where you just got to put in your time and you're creating your own luck. And, you know, who knows? You're still you're going to have some shooting there tomorrow, too, before you head off to your next location, right? Yep. Yep. Tomorrow morning I'll spend half the day or so. Um, you know, I, I'm already planning to be kind of up at that uh, pebble creek area so i'll be getting up a little earlier than normal and heading into the park up to the pebble creek area first thing ron you spent a lot of time in wyoming just because you live there and you get up to the park quite often and then jason you you've done a lot there too so this is a traditional time february march is good for that winter kind of thing what's the next good time is it may is may when you want to go next because april i can't imagine there's that much stuff going on in april right as soon as the do- as soon as the roads open, uh, you need to be in the park, because, and and for two reasons, in my opinion, number one is there's a lot less people, and you can actually get around and actually have some some things to photograph where you're not with the masses, uh, and then the other thing is the bears are starting to get active, and it's a it's a great time to photograph bears, uh, primarily grizzly bears, but. It's a, that's the best time of the year, in my opinion, to be in there is, you know, right when things start to open up. So will you head back up there, both of you guys? Yeah, actually, uh, Eric and Debbie Brewer, who are friends of the podcast, Eric's been on the podcast before. Eric and Debbie are going to be up there for a month. So I'm going to try to go up, catch them for a long weekend or two, spend some time in there looking for bears. And then, of course, you know, further south around Jackson area, the bear activity is pretty good there as well. So try to kind of make that loop up, hit both parks and, and just spend some time in that, that whole greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And then is that something you do, Jason, or is it, do you do that every year too? I might try to, I don't, I haven't been spending as much time on the bears again, you know, this summer I'm heading up to Lake Clark on a bear trip. So um, I have done that in the past and I will, if I can, if I can sneak away for a weekend, which I try to do quite a bit, then yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and Ron's dead on with the roads opening. And if you want to know the exact dates of road openings, you can just go to the Yellowstone website and they have all the dates for the road openings, but any of those road openings are good days to be in there, um, for sure. And I can't remember, I, you know, Hayden is usually one of the last ones to open or actually Dunravens is the last one to open up, but Hayden's one of the second to last to open, I think. So they kind of open just different sections of the park at different dates, but kind of, I think starting basically mid April through, is it the end of May, Ron, or mid May for the dates or the openings? I think it, anyways, you can go to the website and look. And if I, if I'd have been thinking about it, I'd have had those dates in front of me so we could talk about it more, but some years they've had it open in March, but, or they've had every, you know, the East gate is the last of the main gates to get opened up because there's a lot more snow on that high pass. I think last year it was early April and they had it open up. There was a lot of snow though. So there wasn't, you know, you had to find the areas where there was some bare ground. So the animals were feeding, 
and then you'd get the predators around where the ungulates were. But it's it's definitely the best time to be in there. Plus, you've got dusky grouse, river otters. You know, you can find otters any time of the year in Yellowstone. Um, it's just a matter of timing. But you get, you know, the bison, the bears swimming the river, that kind of thing. It's in my opinion, it's the best time to be in the park. But it's probably kind of a moving target with the. It is. With those dates, right? It's not the same steadfast date every year just because it depends on snow. and But they'll kind of forecast it out there and say, oh, well, we think this road will open on this day and you just got to kind of be ready then. Is what I'm. That's yep. what I'm gathering. Actually, if you go to the website, they have dates on there. And I think those are like, they're shooting for those dates to at the, at the bare minimum to be open by these dates. Okay. They could be open earlier, um, but those dates are published out there. I think you go right now and see the dates they're planning on um, but you do have to pay attention to them. Um, the other thing I learned actually this just this last week with the folks that I went on the coach with was that I think this is the last weekend or next weekend is the last weekend for coaches. And then they actually shut it down to snowmobiles and coaches and they start their snow removal process now. So they'll, they'll be in there with their heavy equipment starting to move and, you know, get snow off the roads and stuff. Uh, I'm already. So it's a, it's a long process, right? There's a lot of road in the park and there's a lot of snow. So. Yeah, for sure. Huh. Yeah, you know, I think Rocky Mountain National Park is the same way, but I don't know about as far as moving the snow and getting that road up and over the top opened up. And you know, I don't know, it seems like they, what is it? Memorial Day is the one that's early, right? Labor Day is late in September, yeah. but Memorial Day yep. is yeah. the first one, right? So Memorial Day is when I think they shoot for having that road open up over Rocky Mountain National Park. And it is good up there too, right? You get a lot of the animals up high at that point already. A lot of elk up there anyways. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, hopefully you have a good day tomorrow. When I used to spend tons and tons of time out there, when I had more time to actually spend out there shooting, it was ex- every morning was exciting. You wake up and you're just excited, right? Because you just never know. Exactly. Yeah, you just never know. And here, I was just going to say, every day is a good day. It's all about your attitude. I go out. I like. I think we talked about it off the offline, but I really look forward to these trips. I'm by myself on this trip. I like shooting with other people. Don't get me wrong. I really enjoy it. But I also enjoy those times when I get to go by myself and I get to just be in my car by myself, um, be with the critters by myself. And just it's a lot of time to just kind of clear my head, you know, and just think about things. And um, I, I really do. I enjoy that time. So it'll be a good day no matter what. All right. Let's go ahead and do pro tips. And then after that, then we'll talk about the shooting in the snow, which is good because, Jason, you will have everything right at the tip of your of your fingertips tomorrow when that lynx comes running out of the... I can, I can tell you everything not to do. How's that? <laughs> so who wants to start with the pro tips? I'll, I'll go ahead and start. So this one's a little bit different probably, but I get asked all the time about how much time do I spend in the field and how do I get so many images? The simple answer is you just got to spend the time in the field like we've been talking for me, that means, you know, if I want to go to Yellowstone for the weekend, then that means I'm more than likely going to drive all night and shoot on Saturday day, maybe take a nap in my car midday, um, sleep sometimes, you know, especially spring, summer, and fall, I'm sleeping in my car or my truck and just to keep the, pr- the cost down. Um, and, you know, just shoot all day on Sunday until it's dark and then turn around and drive home. And because I have a, you know, nine-to-five job like most people, I am back to work Monday morning. So a lot of it really is just sacrificing your other time um, to focus on what's important to you, right? And for for me right now, this is something that's very important to me. And I'm, you know, I'm really trying to build my portfolio and do those things. And it just comes down to spending time in the park. So when people ask me that question, you know, you got to be willing to make the sacrifice and, and drive all night or, you know, only go, drive for a day on Saturday and get you know, an evening and a morning shoot and drive home. You can't get those images from your couch. And I, and I say that all the time and it's kind of funny, but it's true. I mean, you've got to be willing to get out and put your time in. So that's, that's my tip for today. I, I'm just going to piggyback on the same thing until I went full time as a photographer and I had that nine to five job is the same thing. You know, you wake up early to go to work Monday through Friday and a lot of people like to sleep in on the weekends, right? But if you're going to try to make a go at this, there's just no way. I mean, I, I would say there's 15, 20 years of time that you, sleeping in is just not part of your life. Just because if you're going to be out there, you're going to be getting those images. And you do. You try to take a nap in the middle of the day. And it's probably not that healthy to be like that. But 
I don't know of any other way to really make a dent in, you know, especially these days, there's so many good images out there. And if you're going to set yourself apart or if you're going to come up with those epic images that, that get you noticed, you just got to spend that time out there and you are hitting the nail on the head. It's just, it's a dedication to the craft for sure. Yeah. And and it's a balance, right? Because I'm also a dad, you know, my youngest, my youngest son is 16 years old. I'm, I'm a husband. And, you know, I, I, you really have to balance that. And I have a very supporting wife. Um, she is so amazing. And my kids come with me from time to time. You know, two weeks ago, my daughter came with me and we came to the park for the weekend. So, you know, I'm able to, I'm able to make some quality time out of it as well with my kids and my family from time to time. But, you know, I've got to, you've got to be careful, right? I'm just, it's, it's a fair warning. I'm sure there's people that may ruin their marriages over some of these kind of what I'd call an addiction or, you know, extreme hobby, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, so it's, you gotta, you gotta keep those other things in mind as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, there is that balance, but hopefully you have, just like you said, your kids are into it, right? So they, they can go with you and you can just, and I I don't know. I mean, obviously we're all biased, but I don't know that you can have a, you know, if you compare (laughs) time with a loved one in a mall or time with a loved one in, in nature or out in the woods, for me, there's no comparison. I'd much rather be out there hanging out in the woods. Yeah, yeah 100% any day of the week. So I guess mine kind of tags along with that a little bit in getting out there. And that, and I know we've kind of touched on this a little bit before, but trying to plan your year. And if you are limited, because if you do have a nine-to-five job, you're, you're probably limited by the amount of leave that you have and – you know, right now I'm limited by the sheer volume of work that I've got to do. And with the limited amount of time that you can have off, start to to kind of plan your year uh, based on what your priorities are to photograph. And that's, you know, again, that's something that I did last year um, with the elk. I wanted the velvet. I set a couple week window aside that I knew, you know, these two weekends, I'm not planning anything else and maybe take a long weekend and just go and so I could be there when they're shedding their velvet and get some of that behavior documented just so I can have that little piece of the life cycle. And so, you know, you've got starting right now, you know, the the bears are going to be coming out of the den here soon. You've got breeding season for the canids. So coyotes, swift fox, red fox, wolves, you know, you can be looking for them right now because they'll be pairing up. A friend of mine, uh, just in doing this and having this conversation, went out and got some swift fox that were actually fighting and got some very visceral footage of these guys just going at it and the aftermath. But then you start to move into like the grouse season for me, sage grouse, sharp tail, dusky grouse. That'll go from about, it'll it'll peak kind of mid-March to late April, early May. Uh, and then once you pass that, then you starting to see fawns that next month, fox kits, you know, young coyotes, coyote pups. And then you start to move into the ungulates. If you're around the park, you know, the, the buffalo or they calve out a lot earlier than anything else around May 1st. Um, not like June 1st, like everything else. And then you start to get into the wildflower season. So you've got the babies in the in the flowers, you know, talking about bighorn sheep and mountain goats in several places. And then there's kind of a lull in the summer where it just those hot months where things slow down. But then you've got the opportunity to go to Alaska, get bears coming down out of the mountains, out of the dens, cubs of the year, fishing bears in August, you know, late July, August, depending on the salmon runs. And then you're right back into moose rut, elk rut, then the sheep rut, deer rut. It's, there's a lot that goes on in a year, so you've got to kind of set some priorities. And that kind of goes along with getting out there. But if you are limited by time, you know, set your priorities for the year and just make it happen. And it's different for everybody. I mean, I think if, you're, if you live in Florida, then obviously you're busy times right now. Yeah, you know, or if you're in Tucson, yep. you're you're busy right now. Or if you're in Southern California, 
It just depends on the part of the country you're in. And so we oftentimes get locked in on talking about the areas that we're very familiar with. But absolutely. But you definitely that calendar does help. I think it does come into play and you can plan accordingly. And, you know, you can plan family vacations around some of that kind of stuff, which is is helpful if if you have an understanding family that lets you get away for a day or two. If you're in Tucson or something, it's it's a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good a good plan. And I mean, it's constantly changing right because there's so many things to do and i think everybody says all the time i wish fall would last six months and that's just not possible so spring spring and fall if they you know, we could extend those two would be golden yes i agree <laughs> well my pro tip is is equipment related just because uh i don't know just because it's easy it's i <laughs> got too much equipment <laughs> and since i am shooting a lot of video uh, tripods become really important for my style of shooting just because anytime I'm shooting video, I have to be on a tripod. But as you guys know, I shoot a lot of stills too. And when I'm shooting stills, I don't necessarily need a tripod, but sometimes I still use them. And what I've found is all of my cameras are set up with, uh, what do they call it? The Arca Swiss plates? Arca Swiss, yep. And I've found this, and I, I'm, I'll bet you a lot of people are familiar with this, but there's bound to be some out there that aren't there's a, a quick release plate that you can buy from really right stuff or you can buy from a couple other kirk enterprises has them there's a couple other places but it's basically a 360 and and the biggest benefit for me is if you have a, a quick release plate on say a 70 to 200 or a two to six or whatever you're shooting down the length of the lens but if you've got a plate on your body then all of a sudden your quick release plate needs to be switched not in orientation with the tripod, but it's going side to side, right? Perpendicular, yep. Yeah, and so I have all these quick release plates. Every tripod that I have has this system. But then sometimes if you need to go with a wide angle lens and you're using the, the quick release plate that's on your body, sometimes it's a conundrum because then you can't get your you can't make it level. Because you're, uh, I'm, and again, this kind of factors into a the tripod head that I use, which is a, a video head. So I've got pan and tilt, and you don't really have the ability to. You do have the ability to level it right to left, but it's it just it's it's different, right? So what I've been doing is I use this little adapter. You guys can see it, and we'll put a link in the show notes. But I, you just twist a dial, and it's got a quick release plate on it, so I can go from orientated right to left then I can just twist it really quickly and then I can go front to back so it's something that if you're going to be shooting video if you guys are going to be shooting stills but you're also shooting video and then you decide oh I need to get some wide angle video this is the best way to do it if you're using a video head for your stuff so I guess I got to quantify the whole thing it, it kind of pertains and really works when you're using a video head the other thing it's cool for is if you're doing panoramics and you really want to be very precise mm -hmm. with it it is all it's got all the degrees on it so you can actually move it by degree so if you're going to try to do some of those really fancy panels where you want to get exactly the right amount every time you know right to left this is the way stitch to do it. 27 images together exactly yeah. exactly and it just keeps it i don't think you need to be that particular these days because the software is so good. But back in the day before the software took over, it was nice to have something that was that you could go by degrees and know that you were covering the whole image. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Nothing sexy, but it's uh, it's a good tool and I always carry it with me and, and we use it all the time for video. The other thing it'll do is say you put a plate on a 70 to 200 that doesn't have a very big foot. So you'll mount on a quick release plate and let's say you want to turn your camera to go vertical, your camera body will hit the, the tripod head. And this just gives you enough elevation to raise it up that you can twist your, your tripod or twist on the tripod collar, your camera up and down, and it gives you a lot more flexibility. So just having it in your bag and just being ready. If you guys are still using that, you guys may not even use quick release plates anymore because you don't really use tripods too much unless you're shooting video. I do because for, for landscape or for astrophotography, you know, if you're out somewhere, you want to catch Northern Lights or catch the, the Milky Way, something like that, you have to. You have to have it locked down because your exposures are going to be, you know, anywhere from 10 seconds to four minutes. Right. Depending That's on true. what you're trying to do. So 
So there is, there's still a way for it. Both of my cameras have the uh, really right stuff uh, L brackets on them for that very reason. Most of the time, if I'm using my, even if I use my video head because I'm not using a real video setup, I'm just using my DSLR with my long lens, um, and I do have a video head for that. But it has an Arca Swiss um, release on it as well, so I can just use, I can go from one tripod to the next. And then if I do want to do landscape or, or water, silky water, whatever. Um, or astrophotography, then I can always just use the L bracket on my uh, on my other tripod, which also has an Arca Swiss attachment. So. so I guess what it really does for you is it, it allows you to not have to carry two tripods. And now that I think about it, and maybe that's why I originally started doing it, but yep. because my quick release plate on my video head is it's a square clamp system where it's got a plate that locks in, and then I've got a quick release plate mounted to that plate. So once you lock it in, and it's not it's you can't you can only go one way with that plate so and it's going down the lens it's orientated down the lens so that's the reason i think i probably started with this is because if i did want to use a plate that was mounted to the body maybe that would make sense maybe that would be the ticket and you wouldn't have to take two tripods so if you're traveling a lot flying a lot and you don't want to have two tripods it turns your video tripod into or your video head into a decent, it's not a traditional ball head, but it's close. And nowadays, I think more people want to shoot, add video to their repertoire. Just taking that video head with this little adapter will get you covered as long as you're using the same plate on every camera and body. Mm -hmm. That maybe brought it all around. Maybe. <laughs> That's a good idea. All right. So today we wanted to talk a little bit more about exposure and i i think with this podcast i've talked to some buddies that listen to it and they're like you know and one of my buddies is a he shoots a lot but he's not his he's a writer and he ends up shooting because he has to submit images with his with his writing and a lot of times they don't buy stock and a lot of times what he's writing about you can't just go find somebody you can't call up somebody hey do you have a shot of you know, the, we talked about it on the last podcast. They they get so particular with their image requests. If the he, if the guys that write in the article can actually take a picture, it's oftentimes helpful, and it actually means more money for him too when he is able to submit pictures and an article. So when I talk to him, he's like, you know, I love listening to your podcast, but sometimes you guys are talking way over my head. And he's like I said, I don't think he's, I don't, wouldn't consider him a professional photographer. He's a professional writer that happens to shoot pictures too, but he gets it. But he's like, sometimes when you guys start talking about stuff, you just go way over, you know, or you're just assuming that we all know exactly what you're talking about. So with that in mind, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about shooting in the snow. And I think you said it well earlier, Ron, off the podcast, you said something about dark images in the snow what was that comment yeah well you know one of the questions that i get a lot and is uh why are my images so underexposed when i photograph animals in the snow there's plenty of light but they kind of have that gray tint and and or it darkens the subject against the snow because the you're you're exposing for the snow in the scene but what you really need to to expose for is the subject. And so if you expose for the snow, your subject's always going to be underexposed. It's kind of counterintuitive when you talk about exposure and exposure compensation. So if you're shooting against something that's really dark, the subject and the full scene to be exposed properly, what your camera is going to try to do is turn it back to 18% gray. So for instance, for those of you that are watching on Facebook, it's a little bit lighter than my sweatshirt. It's halfway between white and black is 18% or neutral gray. So your camera always tries to bring things back to that color. That is a neutral exposure for your camera. So when you're shooting against a black background, your camera is trying to brighten it. And so you, when you're using your exposure compensation, so if you're in uh, your shutter priority, or time value on Canon, or you're in your aperture priority, you're going to have the exposure compensation on the wheel on the back of your camera. So you would actually want to darken the image so that it would keep it exposed like your eye is seeing it. 
because your camera's going to try to light lighten it. You've got to counteract that by darkening, you know, up one third or two thirds of a stop. But that's, that's talking about a dark image, right? So now you're talking, talking about a dark image. So yep. your shot, Jason is the prime example of that. If, if people are familiar with the shot that was on the cover last year of that elk, Oh, it was that situation, yeah. right? Is what you're trying to explain, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually it was, yeah, exactly. You're trying to, you're exposing for the light, not the, yeah, the light hitting the subject. So in that situation, I had to have my exposure set and ready before that ever went down or else I would have just missed it. All right, sorry to interrupt you, Ron. I just wanted to make sure, because we originally started talking about snow and now we're talking about yeah. dark. I so I didn't want people it. to get... You know, I don't want them to think, well, hold on a second. You're talking about snow and now you're talking about yeah. shadows, but keep going. Just, I just wanted to bring it back. That's why it's counterintuitive because if you're, you're shooting in a dark environment where there's a lot of shadows, but then you've got little sunlight that's coming through the trees, you're exposing for that highlight. So you have to darken the image because your camera's going to try to lighten it. Now the counterintuitive part is once you, when you shoot on snow, what most people think is that they have to darken their image. And that's why people get shots that are underexposed. When you shoot against snow, you've got a white scene for the most part, right? So say 60, 70% of your scene is white. What you need to do is add light because your camera is going to try to bring it back to neutral gray again. So now we have to expose the opposite direction. You have to add light to your exposure or your shots will be underexposed. So when you look at your light meter on the bottom of your camera, or your, your meter, not your light meter, sorry, right dead in the middle, you're going to achieve that neutral gray on snow. So what you want to do for your subject is then add one at least one stop of light. So you'd three clicks, you'd slow your shutter down three clicks, which is going to allow more light in and then the exposure is going to be correct. So if you just point your camera at the snow, push the shutter halfway down, it's going to give you that reading, right? So instead of having it right in the center of your camera's meter, you want to adjust your exposure. So you're one stop bright. And most people think you're going to end up with an overexposure, but you won't on your subject. I think that's pretty good, but I think what we can do is we can give examples of how to make it yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. We can fine-tune it now. Yeah. So, and I let's start with this. Jason, if you could explain your thought process, and, and again, we can throw this picture in the show notes just so that people can refer to this picture, because I think it's the prime example for the dark example. Mm. What did you do? I mean, obviously, you knew the scene was going to happen. How did you figure out the right setting for the camera? Yeah. So again, I'll just have to give Harlan Cooper credit for teaching me this. <laughs> um, but it actually really did change the way I think about exposure. Um, and it was a big, big learning moment for me when he explained to me how to expose property for an image and to think about it differently. So when I'm out shooting now, I think about it as not, I'm not exposing for a bison or I'm not exposing for a scene. I'm exposing for the light that's hitting the scene. And that when you, when you think in that those terms that really changes the way you're thinking about it. it at least it did for me so now to ron's point the 18 percent gray you're i'm looking for things as i'm maybe setting up for the shot that reflect that color tone and believe it or not there's some colors out there in nature that are close to that and examples that i've found that are very close to that are like green on pine trees and yellow grasses um, those tend to be fairly close so what I'll do is I'll, I'll turn my camera and I'll find a, you know, something that's close to that. And then I'll, I'll look at it and try to set my exposure based on that. And then what I always do until I get comfortable with what I'm looking at, I'll actually take a photo, I'll zoom in to hundred percent and I'll check and see my details. And that if I'm not, if I'm not blowing out any details, then I feel comfortable with where I'm at. And, and say, for example, maybe in that dark scene, you may have to be a stop and two thirds underexposed in order to get that elk to be bright enough. So, so that was the way I was thinking when I took that, when I took that elk image and it's no different shooting in snow. It's just reverse, but yeah. So I think, um, the way I do it is if I'm shooting with someone and they're standing in the light that the subject is going to be in, I'll 
I'll get a quick reading off their face because skin tones oftentimes <laughs> are about 18%. And then I set my camera on manual. And that way, when you go back over, and now all of a sudden, if you're using your matrix meter, which means your averaging meter, your, your camera is going to look at this scene. And if it's predominantly dark or predominantly white, if you're in aperture priority, if you're not, you got your compensator, but if you don't have anything dialed in right, it's going to say you're wrong, right? Is that right? Am I saying that right? Right. You're going to be wrong, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> so what I do is I go to manual, set that exposure, and then I'll go back to my subject. And then I don't worry about, as long as the light doesn't change, and I know that the subject is coming into that light or is in that light, then I just start shooting. And now the beautiful thing with today's world is all you have to do is look at the back of your screen or back of your camera, and you're going to know if you're close or not. And then you even have a little bit of wiggle room. I'm told there's more information in an image that's a little bit overexposed than an image that's underexposed. And that's probably early. That, I was told that several years ago. So that as these sensors and these cameras get better and better and better, there's probably a lot of information on both ends. So you can oftentimes, if you're shooting, say, two-thirds under or two-thirds over, you can still pull that image back. You can still get it back. So you don't have to be dead on in the camera. But there's no reason you shouldn't be. And you should always strive to be perfect in the camera. That way you have less work to do when you take it into the computer. But just know if you do mess it up a little bit, you still are going to be able to. You can't mess it up a lot. Like if you blow out your highlights, there's if they're way blown out, there's no way you're pulling that back. And the same with the, the darks. If, you, if this is just too dark, you're never going to get any detail there either. The other thing that you can do, and we used to do this a lot back in the film days, if you shoot, if you have a blue sky, so you're shooting in snow and you have a blue sky, if you point your camera at the blue sky away from the sun, so if the sun's rising over here in the east and you point it west, that meter reading you'll get off of that blue sky is the correct meter reading. So if you go to manual again and you go off of that, what it's telling you off of that blue sky, you're going to be pretty dead on when you when you shoot it. So those are some of the tricks. And then a lot, a lot of times I'll use rocks too because I'll find that if there's a rock, as long as it's not a black rock or a white rock, if it's <laughs> a, you know, nor, you know, average brown or gray toned rock, it's, you're going to be pretty darn close. And I always just like go to manual because I don't want to be second guessing, but it really depends on the user and how you're doing it. And then I think there's a whole nother thing that comes into this, but Ron, go ahead. I won't add that until you. Well, what I was going to say is we, we had a great example of this uh, last year when we were shooting Eagles in Alaska, we're, we're on a boat. So it's, it's a moving platform. If we would have been, Michael doesn't shoot a lot of shots. He's very precise. He knows what he wants. He's got an artistic eye. He takes the shots that he wants. But when a guy like that comes back in and says, I, I think I have around 10,000 shots, you know, <laughs> we were blazing away and there wasn't really time to think about every time we turned 180 degrees, think about changing the exposure. So when you shoot, in aperture or shutter priority, your thumb has got to be on that exposure wheel all the time because you're going to have to change your exposure to stay properly exposed. If you, just like what Michael was just saying, if you set it in manual, you get your exposure. As long as that subject is in the same light, the subject doesn't go in, travel into a shadow or doesn't go into a brighter spot than where you're shooting, you don't have to change anything because as you rotate your camera, is going to either overexpose or underexpose based on the background. So your camera takes care of everything we were just talking about. And so manual is really scary for a lot of people, but honestly, shooting wildlife, it's, it's something that you should really force yourself to get in the habit of doing because it does save you time because your thumb can't be on that wheel and moving to focus point to recompose. Or if you're, a back button focus person can't be on the wheel and focusing at the same time. So you, if you want to free that up completely, switch to manual, get used to shooting in manual, just get your exposure for the majority of the light that you're going to be shooting in and go to town, have fun. Yeah. And I think that's the situation when you do switch to manual, what you metered on is the same exact light as what you're going to be shooting. So 
maybe your background's totally dark, but that animal or that subject is in the light that you metered up for. Once you go to manual and you have that setting, do not pay attention to your meter. Don't even look at it. You don't even need to worry about it. Just shoot. And like you said, you can focus more on moving your focus point or com- composition. And then it just takes one less thing out of your out of your thought process. For me, it does. It just works better that way. And that's if you have time. But I still think yep. you need to know everything else we're talking about. Because if you don't have time or if you're in a situation where, and maybe it's this way for you, Jason, up there in Yellowstone right now, it's if everything's white, you may not have something that you can, you know, it might be a cloudy sky. You might not have the blue sky to, to meter off of. You might have not any rock showing and you might not have that yellow grass. You might not be shooting with somebody where you can meter off of their skin tone. It's just, you still have to know how to compensate. There's, it's just a lot of stuff to think about. It's not hard. Once you figure it out, it's super easy, but it's just yeah. getting your brain to think that way. And, and, understanding the cameras and the camera meters yeah yeah i'll, I'll actually say though so, so for today you know it was really super bright this morning and another i mean it's another trick that i try to do right is you never know when something's going to run across the road or be you know you're going to run into something so I, I always try to be thinking ahead and i always try to adjust my settings and my camera even before something goes down so even if it's just pulling over real quick pointing my camera out the window making my adjustments and then i'm good to go if the light changes i'll pull over again and do it again um, that way you're always ready. I've missed images in the past because I wasn't ready and, and, you know, I missed those opportunities. But the other thing I would say is in the snow, everything's white. You're right. There's really nothing to, you know, to, to compensate from. So one of the things I've learned is, you know, after you've done it for a while, you get a feel for if it's a really bright day and the sun's bright and you're in the snow, I know I'm going to probably need to be about a, a stop and two thirds to two stops overexposed. And, but I always check that again, I always use that little trick of, you know, get it where I think it needs to be, take a photo, zoom in and look at the snow, look at the details in the snow, make sure I'm not blowing out anything. And then once I know where that needs to be to your point, I a hundred percent shoot manual, just like you were saying, and just forget about it. If the light doesn't change, I'm good to go. I don't even, I don't even pay attention to my exposure until the light changes. I think what you just said about being prepared is huge, right? Because a lot of times... You'll wake up in the morning, you load your car, whatever, go where you're, wherever you're going, you throw your camera next to you, and then you're just driving down the road having a great old time, right? And then something happens, and then you grab your camera, and it's set from the night before, and chances <laughs> are the light is not the same. So that is a really good habit to get into. And I think we've talked about that once before, but constantly just, it's just got to be a mindset where, okay, the light, and it changes a lot from when you leave in the morning before the sun comes up to say 10 o'clock there's several times throughout the day and depending on the weather it's just you're going to change a lot so but you just need to be cognizant of that and just constantly be waiting for that light to change and and just quickly i've missed a ton of shots because of that just because it's just (laughs) you know it's really bad when you're with a buddy or something and you guys are just talking or whatever and you don't think about that kind of stuff. That's it's a good thing to yeah. remind yourself all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to bring up in regards to that topic is, and I think since you're shooting with this new Sony, that's a whole nother game because it's what you see is what you get now. So when you're looking through the viewfinder, let me let me speak to that because <laughs> I actually have learned some lessons on this trip, and I used to think, well, it is you get you see what you get. And that's not necessarily 100% true. Um, that Sony, at least the one I've been shooting, um, it's a little bit darker than what you're going to see, if that makes sense. So I'm sorry. It looks brighter on what you're seeing, and then when you get it in the computer, it's not as bright. So your actual file is a little bit darker. And I think there's some things you can do, and I'm not smart enough um, to figure it out yet, that you can adjust that in camera to so it looks a little bit closer. But what I'm learning is I used to think, well, this is cheating. I just don't, I don't have to think about exposure anymore. I just see what I get. But I'm learning that if I really want to nail my exposure, which I think is very, very important, then you, I am, I'm back to paying attention to my meter. I'm ignoring that. What you see is what you get. And I'm really focusing on my metering and focusing on trying to nail my exposure. Because one of the things I've learned, at least in snow, is that if you nail your exposure, I've always wondered how people get these really bright snow images and the critters exposed property and the snow has all the detail in it. And the, what I'm learning is that if you nail your exposure, you can have that happen. 
But as, if you don't nail your exposure too light, too low, those details don't tend to be there. And as soon as you start messing with your sliders in Lightroom, you tend to either lose those details or you know you just they're just not the same. So I, we're probably getting real nitpicky here with the little details, but you know if you want to be as good as you can be, um, I really think one of the biggest tricks you can do to make your photography as good as possible is try to be as spot on as possible with your exposure. And I think speaking to your monitor thing, so essentially what when you're using a Sony or a mirrorless camera and it's giving you a video basically display through your viewfinder, what you were saying yep. about figuring it out, I think what that is is you can change the brightness on that monitor too, right? That is that you're looking at. You can. So that's what you that's what you're dealing with is if that's not right. And that speaks to some afternoon in the summer setting up a an exposure chart in your backyard. You know, it's almost like yep. um calibrating your monitor when you're doing images. It's just as important because if you calibrate that camera and you don't necessarily have to calibrate it to a specific set of specifications. You just have to calibrate it for your brain. You have to know, okay, when I look through this viewfinder, I see this, but I know that the exposure is going to be right on it. I've done that forever with cameras. I don't necessarily calibrate to a specific set of specifications. I calibrate in my mind and I know that after shooting several thousand images through a camera, you just look at that monitor on the back and you're like, oh yeah, I'm there. I know it's right. Just be, and it may not be right. If you yeah. showed it to someone else, they'll be, they could look at it and say, oh, that looks way too dark. But it could be just because I got the brightness on my monitor on the back of my camera dimmed down a little bit just to save on batteries or some something, whatever it is. I just know. But that's because I spend so much time yeah. shooting other things that you get really familiar with it. So if you're not shooting a ton, you may just want to set up in your backyard. And then when you do have a snowy situation, just go out and play. That's the best thing you can do to kind of figure this stuff out. Don't wait till you got a Lynx in your viewfinder to figure <laughs> it out. You know, figure it out beforehand. Not a good then, time. To... <laughs> no, no, exactly. It's one of those deals where it's not a difficult thing. It's super easy to, to do once you get it figured out, once you kind of understand the basics. But it's an easy thing to mess up or get... The other thing is, is if you do have that animal out in front of you, your, your anxiety is like, I got to get it. I got to get it. And then your brain kind of shuts off. Right. And, and you, you adjust the wrong way or you adjust way too much, or it's just practice. And then just, or you just start blazing away and you don't adjust at all. Well, you know, yeah. what we used to do is <laughs> in the film days is we would bracket. So we would, you could set up your camera to bracket everything. And then when I got in snow, a lot of times I would bracket way you know, I'd set zero, <laughs> one stop, two stops, and then you had 36 pictures, but basically you're taking three pictures for every one picture, and then you're basically getting 12 shots on that roll yeah. with that bracketing. But it did save your bacon sometimes because the camera was going to make those adjustments for you. And I'm sure you can do that. In the, I haven't even messed around with that with these digital cameras, but I'm sure you can set up a bracketing. I know you can. You can, yep. Yeah, you can just go in and set that. So that's the other way you could accommodate for this is you could... But the risk you run there is if it takes three shots to get that right exposure, is the animal going to have their eyes closed or are they going to be looking, mm -hmm. you know, their nose is going to be twisted in a funny little way. That happens all the times with bears. You know, you think you got this really great shot. Everything's perfect. And then their nose is just kind of cocked over to one side and you're like, that looks really fun. It just doesn't look real. You know, it just looks like, oh, that's a taxidermy problem. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, I'll add just one more thing, too, is a, back to that whole idea of, uh, you know, not all snow is equal, not all light is equal. And I know it sounds common sense, but don't think that just because it's snow, you're going to be one to two thirds to two stops over, overexposed. Right. If it's dreary and snowy like it was this afternoon, I was about a stop over, not, not two stops. So that light still matters. You still got to be just because you're in snow doesn't mean that it's always just going to be one. To, it's not going to be the same. You got to still pay attention to that exposure and, and play with it. So good point. That is a really good point. Well, I, I think hopefully this has been a, a conversation that can be understood. I, I you know, it's, it's not <laughs> hard. It's just practice and it's just the basic understanding and then just play. That's it's definitely a concept that's easier shared when you're standing next to somebody because you can you can shoot for examples. But we'll put up some examples of the eagles 
we'll have Jason throw that shot up, his his cover shot from last year, or this newest one that he just got, because it's it's kind of the same principle. You're exposing for those highlights in the animal's eyes, and but we'll throw some examples in the show notes, and then if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email us or get a hold of us. Send us a message on Instagram, and we will definitely try to help you out with that. Because it can be a very counterintuitive thought process to work yourself into. But once you have it, it's it's there. Agreed. Yeah. yeah, I forgot about the Eagles. That was the perfect situation. That It was the same as what Jason had with that elk. It's, yep. You yep. just know that you just need to compensate. And, and those are really special situations too, right? That's the other thing I think we could talk about is that's the image that's going to set you apart. That's the image that people are going to go, how did you do that? That is so incredible that that light is just perfect. And it was that, and I know in your situation, Jason, you said it was the foresight. It's like, okay, this might happen. And if I make these adjustments accordingly, it could turn out really, really good. And I know Ron and I had that conversation on the boat last year. It's like, Hey, if these Eagles are flying over here in against this dark Ridge, we're going to get that situation where it's just going to, they're going to pop and everything's going to go black and which is what you mm-hmm. want. So yeah. by having that, you, you are going to end up with a really special image. Yeah. Those Eagle images are just insane too. If you haven't seen him go look at <laughs> Mike Enron's account. I think there's even some on the, on the wild and exposed page too, but mm-hmm. yeah, we, yeah, we'll, we'll put those as good day. examples. I hope y'all got something out of this. I hope Jason, that you get some awesome something tomorrow <laughs> on your way out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And uh, Ron and I will be manning the I, desk. Yep. Thank you. I hope I do too. But I, like I said, I'll, it'll be a good day regardless. But hopefully, hopefully I come away with a couple of good clicks. So. Well, thanks for tuning in. One thing we didn't do yesterday when we brought Jason into the whole show is share your Instagram handle. I want to make sure everybody oh, yes. is aware of that. I think uh, they've heard Ron and mine a ton. But throw out your Instagram handle and then also... Obviously, all this stuff is in the on our website and in the show notes, and you can find it very easily there. But if you're driving down the road and you want to check out Jason's work, where do they find you on Instagram? Um, Untamed Images by JL. And then on Facebook, it's the same. Uh, Untamed Images by Jason Loftus. It's actually just my full name on the, on Facebook. So. And then what about um, – well, we'll website. have everything. I don't know. Do you have a website going right now or not, Jason? I do. Yeah, it's it's the same. Untamed Images by JL um, dot com. Sorry, www.untamedimagesbyjl dot com. Okay, so we'll put all that up on the on the website. But if anybody wants to go check it out after you get done driving to work, you can hop on and see. Yeah. <laughs> and then Ron, just throw yours out there since we're sharing. Uh, Instagram is at Ron Hayes underscore wwi. And then my website is westernwildlifeimages.com. And mine is Michael Morrow Photo on Instagram. And then I really don't do too much on the web stuff. All right. Thanks for listening to Wild and Exposed. Again, we would like to have some more listener participation. So if you have any questions, please send them along. Let us know what subjects you'd like to hear and where you'd like to meet us in the field. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in.